Uh, the next question is, why is the success rate of meditation so low? Question comes from Eric. I thought you were going to read the uh, the question. Um, I will read just a little bit of it then so people have, have the idea. It seems that meditation is the main practical application of MBT. Um, I would disagree with that. The, the main practical application of MBT is getting rid of fear. And uh, I've discussed the processes and how to do that uh, many, many times. I think that would be more fundamental than the meditation. But anyway, he says, yet meditation has been done all over the world by many people in many different religious settings all through history. Yet there seems to have been only very few who have reached a state of higher consciousness. Why is the success rate of meditation so low? Why is it that many people throughout history haven't really been successful at all meditating? despite meditating for many decades in order to reach enlightenment. Well, the reason is, is that meditation is a tool for helping you get acquainted with your consciousness. But it's not something that's going to make you grow up. It's not that if you meditate, you'll grow up. That's not it. Meditation isn't a growing up thing. It's a tool that you might use to grow up, but um, you know, tools by themselves don't accomplish anything. You, know, you can give a man a hammer, but if he never hits a nail with it, then the hammer, uh, though he has the tool, he doesn't accomplish anything with it. Well, you can meditate and never accomplish anything at all with it. If you maintain it all in your intellect, which most people do, it's an intellectual exercise. You quiet your mind. You let all that go, you get to a point, even if you get to point consciousness and you float around there or whatever, and even if you do things, even if you heal people or do other things while you're in meditation or whatever, if it's all an intellectual exercise, then you don't grow up. You've just learned to get around in the, little, in the larger consciousness system a little bit, perhaps. Perhaps you can meditate, you go out of body, you go places, do things. That doesn't help you grow up. That just gives you another set of experiences, another set of, of uh, choices. You still have to make those choices and learn from them. You know, a lot of people make thousands of choices every day and never learn anything from any of them. You know, the lessons go in, in one ear and out the other. So just because you're out there making choices doesn't mean you're going to learn anything. It's the same with meditation. It's just a tool. You have to want to learn and want to grow up. And you have to have an intention on learning and growing up. So, yes, you can learn to go out of body. You can learn to heal. You can learn to do all sorts of things and not grow up at all. So those are tools, things to do. That's doing stuff. It's not being stuff. Growing up is a being thing. You have to change yourself at the being level. You have to be differently. And you can't be differently by doing anything, including meditation. Tom, there's another question that came in. It's not part of the questions that were submitted. It was uh, came in on a contact form. Uh, this person was using your recent binaural beats, and it, apparently they worked really well, so much so that non-physical entities that used to frighten her in a, in a meditation state came back. And... Um, she was able to interact with them again. There's a fear involved in this, and she's asking, 
is it okay to use the binaural beats during meditation specifically to dial down the fear? Oh, sure. You use whatever works. It's okay to use whatever works. So if you've got something, if you've got a tool and it's helping you um, understand, it's helping you grow up, it's helping you see bigger pictures, it's helping you deal with your fear, then use it. So sure, it's okay to use the binaural beats in any way that they're useful to you. But again, like I said in the last question, you have to grow up through your own intent to grow up. It doesn't happen just because you use a tool. You can listen to binaural beats all all day, every day, and still not grow up a bit. None of that will force you. There's no way to force you to grow up. There's no technology. There's nothing you can do that makes you grow up. It's a matter of being. We have a question from Andrew on the MBT forum. I understand that consciousness is fundamental, having emerged from a void of potential, and that it's ultimately digital and self-organizing along the lines of cellular automata. What I don't understand is how this solves Chalmers' hard problem of consciousness. Uh, this is, uh, he's referring, I guess, to David David Chalmers. Chalmers. Mm-hmm philosopher. Um, if it's just data, wouldn't the LCS something be an enormous philosophical zombie, having no subjective experience? All kinds of data could be moving around, but without qualia. Just saying that consciousness is fundamental doesn't really explain it, in my view. There's a huge gap to explain. What confuses me is the idea of how subjective consciousness can emerge from reality cells if these are essentially just binary switches i.e. they can either be on or off cellular automata can be shown to produce very complex structures but I still don't see why these structures aren't zombies well that's a good question and it makes a good point and my solution to that is I started with an assumption in my book that consciousness exists. You see, it's, it's not, uh, even if you start with this as a potential, you know, you have to have that potential to be aware, that potential of self-awareness. And where that comes from is not knowable. So, we just have to start with the assumption that consciousness does exist. Consciousness has feelings and it can, uh, you know, all the qualia, its ability to discern things are there. Now that, that is part that that is computed, that that can be done uh, computationally is not that amazing. We have lots of ways in computation that we can produce uh, non algorithmic results, neural networks for one, um, using uh, randomness, uh, building up uh, uh, learning you know, from history, the way things are approached, the way things might work. So there's lots of ways that you can get a computer to do things that are not algorithmic. In other words, they're not just rules to be obeyed. So the qualia are just part of consciousness and consciousness is information part of that information is the qualia qualia is also information 
it's um, there's nothing incompatible with qualia and information. And there's nothing incompatible with information and an information system. So I don't think there's an issue, but there is the one issue you bring up, and that is how did we get to this self-awareness to begin with? Where did the where did that spark of awareness come from out of this potential? You know, if, it, if that consciousness was the potential and that potential birth consciousness, well, that's about the same thing as saying that uh, we just make an assumption that consciousness exists. That's why in my books, I didn't try to take it back any further than that, because that's about as far back as you can reasonably take it before you run out of an ability to say anything about it, because beginnings are problematical you don't have any direct information on the beginnings of a system if you're inside the system all the all the information if any exists at all on the beginning lies outside of the system because it hadn't began yet you see so how you got up to that point of beginnings is is outside our knowing and i think we just have to look around and say consciousness exists well, therefore, consciousness exists because we see it. Now, the hard problem that David has is that he would like to have, well, at least early on in his career, I think he's changed some recently, but the hard problem is, is generally the problem of how the brain creates consciousness. How do you take a physical uh, brain and make it simulate consciousness? And that, of course, is necessary if you're a materialist. If you're a materialist, then you have to you have to uh, have a material cause for consciousness, and that means the brain has to create it somehow. And that somehow is the hard problem, because as much as scientists have beat their brains on describing that somehow, they've come up empty-handed every time. So that's the hard problem is that um, it's impossible to prove that that the brain causes consciousness. And the reason it's impossible is because it doesn't. It's the other way around. It's a virtual brain. And it serves as the uh, constraints on, you know, what the um, consciousness can do cognitively as, you know, as as per the, the rule set which defines the biology and including the brain and the central nervous system. So that's uh, the, the hard problem is solved because we don't have to uh, create consciousness from a physical thing. The physical thing is not really a physical thing. It's a virtual thing and it's created within consciousness. So hard problems gone. All right. We've got another question from Eric. Is the construct of justice entirely fear-based? Is there a difference between justice and revenge? Is the construct of justice fear-based? Does the construct of justice still play a role in the non-physical? Or is it only a PMR construct? Um, justice is more than... You know, it, justice is, is more than uh, um, you know, what, retribution, revenge. Justice has with it also the quality of trying to minimize the 
entropy in the overall system. Okay, so if we do something, uh, and all of this is, turns around morality and right and wrong, if we do something um, that causes damage or trouble for somebody, then the moral thing to do, and I would say the just thing to do, is to help repair that problem. You know, you uh, throw a snowball and it knocks a window out of the little old lady who lives in that apartment and she's 90 years old and, uh, you know, getting a chill is not really a good thing for her. Then instead of running away and figuring that nobody knows it was you, we'd be going up knocking on the door, confessing, and then fixing that window or calling up somebody to come out right away and fix it while you put a piece of cardboard or tape or something over it to keep the air out. So that's what justice would would require. It would require some, you know, it's not really reparations, but it's it's minimizing the the entropy production. Okay? If you're the cause of that entropy production, then uh, you have some responsibility to try to clean that up or or whatever. Societies uh, take on that role sometimes too, where there are, um, you know, victims of, you know, hurricanes or earthquakes or something like that, and aid is brought in. It's not like, well, eh, natural occurrence, tough luck, good luck. You see, that would not be very just because there's a whole lot of us that are sitting around with probably more cash than we need for that day, and we can help fund that, that uh, helping those other people. That would be a just thing to do. So now I'm thinking of justice as a concept, as an idea. It's, it's not just retribution. Um, retribution would be you throw the ball through somebody's window and, you know, we want vengeance. We're going to do something to you. We're going to, uh, you know, lock you up or fine you, you know, a hundred dollars or something, you know, that's, that's the not avengers. Now, if Eric's talking about our penal system and our justice system, like courts and trials and justice and, and, uh, punishment and that sort of thing. Well, what happens in our, in our legal system probably has very little to do with justice. You know, it's more about rules and it's more about, uh, yes, about punishment it's more about setting up a bunch of rules and then working from the rule set that you that you make up. So somebody does a crime, and the society should, if they were just, want to look at that crime and that individual. And before anybody goes to jail, somebody would have to determine, is that necessary? Is that the best thing? Is that going to lower entropy in the system? And maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, you know, maybe we find out it was an accident or it was an error or somebody thought that something was different than it was or whatever, or the person may not be violent and may not be likely to ever do anything like it again. And then why would you want to incarcerate them? Well, we do anyway, because, oh, you do this crime, then you do the time. That's just the way it is. But that's increasing the entropy in our system. It's doing things that aren't helpful to our society. You've just create more problems that way. The guy in jail, you know, now has a chip on his shoulder because, you know, it really wasn't a fair thing to do in his mind. And also he hangs out now with a lot of very bad people that uh, influence him maybe in negative ways. 
and he leaves a wife and uh, three kids with no support. Look at all the trouble you've caused when maybe that really wasn't such a good idea. Maybe you should have uh, you know, gotten a little uh, restitution from him and, uh, and uh, sent him back out there to do better. Those kinds of decisions have to be made. But see, that requires, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I was going to say that requires a brain, you know, but what I mean is that requires people to care. That requires somebody to think about it and then take responsibility to do it. And nobody's willing to do that because if I say, oh, let's send him back out. I think he's okay. And then he goes back out and does something even worse. Oh, now you're in trouble because you let the bad guy go. So you see, people are afraid to make decisions. They're afraid to take the chance. They're afraid to look at a situation, come up with some kind of conclusion about what the low entropy solution was, and then do it. Because if it just happens that probability doesn't work out for them, then they get punished for their effort to try to do the good thing. You see, that's because it's much easier to follow rules than it is to think and lower entropy. That's why we have bureaucracies. The, uh, the slogan for all bureaucracies is, we don't need brains, we've got rules. That's the way bureaucracies work. They take thinking and, and uh, responsibility out of the equation and just make rules. Well, that will ensure that things won't ever get but so bad, but it also ensures that things will never get but so good kind of traps you in mediocrity. So that's uh, kind of the thing with justice. Our legal system isn't a justice system. For the most part, it is a revenge system. But that's just us because we're so fear-based. We're afraid to make choices. We're afraid to make decisions. It's easy to just lock somebody up than it is to counsel them and then go check up on them and then help them find a job and do the kinds of things that it would take to integrate them back into society. Oh, that takes a lot of work and resources. Lock them up. Eh, it still takes resources, but it's easy. So that's our, our justice system is really not about justice and it's not about uh, uh, rehabilitation. It's none of those things. It's basically about following the rules. The rules are the rules of the legal system and the rules of courts and the rules of lawyers. And we follow those rules and whatever happens, happens. And justice, eh, not so much. But justice as a concept, yes, justice as a concept is the concept that, that uh, you try to put things right particularly if you can and if you are responsible for what went wrong. Now, one would just say, well, that's just ethics. Well, yeah. If the ethical thing is done, then it's probably, you know, justice has been done. Ethics, justice, morals, they all kind of point in the same direction. So justice is very different than, uh, than revenge. Revenge isn't trying to reduce entropy. Revenge is just trying to get even. Justice is trying to make amends. It's trying to fix what's broken. It's trying to help. It's justice to help that kid that got in trouble go find a job, train him, teach him to do something useful, give him a, a, a reason to uh, you know work on the right side rather than on the wrong side, help him out. Throwing him in the 
jail is counterproductive for the most part. That's not justice. Justice is to lower entropy as much as you can wherever you see it. At least that's my opinion of it. All right, thank you, Tom. Vanessa didn't get a chance to ask all of her questions, so please go ahead, Vanessa. Okay, thanks, Donna. Um, it's a good opinion. I like your opinion. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> so the question that I have is um, about lowering entropy growing up. I understand that it's important to uh, be the change, so lower my own entropy, get rid of my own fear, get rid of my ego, and um, mm -hmm. I'm doing that. <laughs> working on it um, but I feel like what else can I do what else can I do to, to help others to lower their entropy to help create this massive global paradigm shift from fear to love what else is there is there more that I can do uh, probably maybe what you you know you can't help well you can help you can't make anybody grow up but you can help people grow up and you help people grow up by producing an environment that encourages them to grow themselves up. So in, in some ways, you know, you are working that very problem because, you know, Vanessa has this group of MBT, you know, discussions and they talk to each other about growing up and what to do and how to deal with things. And just that's creating an environment for people. So people who, uh, uh, get interested in bigger pictures and none of their friends or family are interested in bigger pictures. They feel isolated. They don't have anywhere to go, nobody to talk to, uh, no encouragement, no outside uh, help there. So one of the things you can do is create an environment where people can take the risk, can find their authenticity and can grow up, but you can't make them grow up. You can give them a good environment. Now, let's say in a relationship. That's what we were talking about earlier, about the male-female. In a relationship, the way you help a spouse grow up or a boyfriend or a girlfriend grow up is by giving them unconditional love so that they you take away their fear. If they have fear, then they're going to, you know, they're going to not want to, Give so much because they're afraid. But if they know that you're going to be there, you're going to love them, you're going to care for them, however they are, now they have the, the confidence to change, to grow up to be more. Whereas if they mess up, you're going to come down on them. Now they have the, you know, the encouragement to manipulate you so that you don't know that they've messed up, to not be honest with you. So you help people. Let's say be honest. That's a good start, right? Being authentic is being honest. You know, you help people to be honest just by not being judgmental. So those are the kinds of things you can do, you know, kind of one-on-one, -on -one. not being judgmental with people, uh, giving them opportunities to grow, giving them a safe space where they can be themselves, where they can just tell it the way they are and feel safe in that space that they can do that to help them become you see, so you can do that, but you can't actually reach out and, you know, touch them with the magic wand and have them grow up. It doesn't work that way. They have to do it themselves. So you're doing many things right. You are talking to people. You formed a group so that people can uh, talk to each other. Um, you know, in as much as you can get other people to see bigger pictures, 
then you're a part of, of their growth. You make it easier for them to grow up because they can, can see where growth takes them, that it's a good thing. They'll be happier. Relationships will be better. But the biggest thing you can do is just grow up yourself because when you grow up, everybody you're connected to grows up some too. You're a good example. Not only a good example, but you're good energy. When people are around you, they just feel better. They don't feel like trying to manipulate or control. They just feel more open and they feel better. So once you grow up, you are a force that makes it easier for other people to grow up. So that's the big thing you can do. Because if you you can form a lot of groups and you can do things like that with people, but if you never grow up yourself, then eventually the whole thing turns out to be kind of hollow. Everybody's talking the talk, but nobody's walking the walk, you see, and you're all congratulating each other on how grown up you are, and everybody goes home and, uh, you know, does, uh, you know, ego stuff. So you have to actually be it. Yeah, and I can see that because I was working with a personal development company that was very intellectual, and they would all talk the talk, but then I, was, I saw so much ego, and I'm like, what's up, what's that? There's that's so fear-based. <laughs> But yeah. Um, yeah, I find that surrounding myself with other people who really want to change at that being level and also helps me to change. So it goes, sure. goes both ways. Yes, it does. So work on yourself and be open to other people. Be helpful in any ways you can. So that's yeah. really as much as you can do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. All right. We'll move right along to another question from Eric. Uh, two questions about entropy, fear, and belief. I can understand that entropy is fundamental since information is fundamental, but what I don't see is how entropy translates to the emotion or experience of fear in our lives. How does a lack of order in the data of an IUOC, that's an individuated unit of consciousness, turn into, for example, fear of inadequacy or fear of death? Also, did Alm experienced a lot of fear in its beginning stages since its entropy was very high. That's the unbounded, and that's the absolute unbounded manifold. Yeah, well, I think we just answered that last question earlier on. We talked about how the larger consciousness system did have to grow up and is still growing up, um, but got a real big head start on us because we were its challenge to grow up, and uh, now we. Uh, challenge ourselves to grow up in this in this virtual reality um i've also talked about is where does the fear come from uh, we are just potential as consciousness we have all of this potential and what we make of that potential has to do with our choices so w the way we became so fearful we were very much uh like the, the yogi that uh, goes, sits in a cave and, and is a hermit, you know, for 20 years and never interacts with anybody. Well, he spends all his time meditating. And from the meditation point of view, he may have grown tremendously from that. But my guess is that that ego and fear is still about the way it was when he first walked into that cave because it's never been tested. It's never, he's not had to deal with that. So that yogi comes out into the into the harsh world and things happen and he gets elbowed and people jostle him and step on his feet and, you know, 
dirt gets on him and so on, he doesn't like it. And my guess is he has a hard time dealing with it because he never practiced doing any of that stuff. Well, that's the way we were as consciousness. We were in this big chat room. We were individuated units of consciousness. And what we did was communicate. We communicated and we talked and we chatted and we didn't really learn much of anything. You see, there's very little traction there on growing up because there's very few consequences. If there's no consequences, then there's not a lot of growth. There's not a lot of learning going on. And then the system came up with this virtual reality and we logged onto this virtual reality and suddenly we were not in that chat room anymore. We were struggling for our lives. We needed to find something to eat. We needed to find shelter. Uh, other bands of people were preying on those. Uh, you know, we had the tigers and the lions and the bears to deal with. Uh, we had weather to deal with. And it was kind of struggle and terror and fear all around. That's where the fear came from. But that's also where the opportunity came from to grow up. Because now we're in a place where we can make choices that do have traction, do have consequences. We can learn in this schoolhouse. But in order to start here, it was traumatic. Out of that chat room, you know, into, into physical reality on planet Earth, what, um, you know, 400,000 years ago, that was tough. It was scary. And people didn't live very long. It was, a, it was a rough, bitter existence. That's where all our fear came from. And we've been working that off ever since. But at least we got into a place where we can grow up. We're not just in a big chat room anymore. But to do that, we had to play by the rules here. And that's the way the rules were. The, that's the that's this environment where you have consequences to everything you do. Every choice you make has a consequence. And if you make poor choices, the consequences are struggle and pain and unhappiness. Well, that's a that's a pretty good stick. If you make good choices, it's you get happiness and joy and fun and satisfaction, and that's a pretty good carrot. So we're in this stick and carrot school where we get to make choices and we get to grow up. The price of that was having to deal with survival here, having to deal with interacting with our own kind and with other species and having to do that positively. And we didn't do so well <laughs> in the beginning. It was mostly uh, very self-centered, very competitive, very me, 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 because all those, you know, all those years, all that time in the chat room just didn't exercise any of those kinds of choices. We were great chatters, but we weren't too good when it came to survival and being nice and caring about other people. So that's kind of the origin of the, uh, of the fear. Um, so we got into, uh, we got into this world and there was chaos here, lack of order. That chaos created anxiety and fear in us. So that's how chaos, you know, turns into, uh, turns into fear, a fear of death, being inadequate. You had responsibilities here. It wasn't just you now. 
It was you and your wife and your kids. You had responsibilities. You needed to be adequate. If you weren't adequate, everybody dies. So there was very, very sharp consequences to your choices. And that was because of the chaos and the unruliness and the randomness of that environment. So that's that's kind of the connection between the two. Um, he says, how does a lack of order in the data of an IUC turn him in, for example, fear and inadequacy? Well, that lack of order in the data was this virtual reality. That lack of order in the data was the chaos, the saber-toothed tigers and the other humans that had discovered, you know, pointy sticks, you know, before you did. That was the that was the chaos. All of that is very high entropy stuff. Low entropy stuff is caring, living. I mean, uh, you know, working together, cooperation. That's the low entropy stuff. The gimme, and it's all about me. When that comes down that data stream, that's the high entropy stuff, and that creates the fear and the anxiety. So that's really the connection between those two. Um, then his question is, you talk about fear and belief. Which one of these is most fundamental? I would say that it's the fear is fundamental. Belief is a product of fear. Okay? Belief is a result of fear, but fear is the fundamental thing. Okay? He says, uh, we could say that fear is more fundamental than belief since we create beliefs in order to cope with our fear. On the other hand, it also makes sense to say that our beliefs generate fear. Because from what I understand, most of our fears arise from beliefs that aren't true. Well, they go together. Yes. But the reason you have that belief is because you had the fear. It's the fear first, then the belief. So, yes, you have a fear of being inadequate. Okay. And that creates a belief that you are inadequate. And then you go out into the world and that belief that you are inadequate makes you act in ways that are dysfunctional. It may make you act like a bully. It may act you, make you act like a wallflower. It may make you act uh, like you're afraid of uh, intimacy or relationship, uh, whatever. It may make you uh, uh, difficult to keep a job because you feel always inadequate in whatever job you have. And eventually, if that's what you think you are, that's the way you become because you create what you fear. So the it's the it's the fear that is fundamental. Even though it's the belief gained by that fear that uh, often dogs you, you know, through life. Like I was ran into somebody uh, just a few months ago who was confessing that when they were a young child. They had a sibling who got, I think it was a teddy bear, who got some, some presents anyway, and they didn't get any. And that was the beginning of their, of their uh, sense that they were inadequate. They weren't good enough. Because why did the parents give him something or give her something didn't give me anything? Well, that's kind of trivial. I think the child that got the toy was sick or having some kind of special difficulty, and the mom was trying to cheer him up, you see. But that makes sense. That's rational. But it didn't matter to the child that felt inadequate, that they just weren't good enough, that they wouldn't get a gift. And for us, that's so trivial that we wouldn't even guess that a child would feel that way. 
But there it is. And he realized that later, that that was the beginning of a of his, you know, that was a fear. He had this fear, and that action then triggered that fear and gave it reality, made that fear reality. And once that fear was made reality, then it became a belief. So I think that's the relationship of, of fear and belief. You have the fear, that fear becomes a reality, that reality turns into a belief, and now you believe you're inadequate. And now you're 50 years old <laughs> and having, you know, problems in your life because of your fear of inadequacy. And it all goes back to a silly little thing like you didn't get the teddy bear. Yes, belief does cause us troubles. You believe that you're inadequate, but that belief has its origin in a fear. But it's almost, um, you know, it depends on how you look at the words. It's kind of a semantic thing. I guess you could really make arguments in both directions, but I like that direction better. Uh, Belief being fundamental doesn't quite seem right to me. Fear being fundamental, love being fundamental, those two are opposites. That uh, I like that better. A question from Rando from MBT Forum Users: Is there an increased attention from the larger consciousness system towards the events happening here on planet Earth, especially considering the fact that science is learning and leaning more and more towards a virtual reality, and how much the internet has changed communications in the world? Ah, well, I would say, yes, probably there is. And the reason for that is time is moving a lot more quickly now than it used to as far as change goes. Time, of course, is the same. A second hasn't changed any, but, and the time it takes our planet to go around the sun hasn't changed any, but the rate of change has increased tremendously. I think if you go back, what, um, you know, even a thousand years, things didn't change much. You know, people were born, did what they did, died, and generation after generation, and there was almost no change. It just was very stable. Things just kind of were that way for hundreds of years and hundreds of years. Not like that anymore. Now in a decade, there's more change going on here than there used to be in a century. So, the pace of change gets faster than the rate of decision-making. I mean, important decisions, critical decisions, that starts to increase as well. And as our important decisions increase dramatically, then the system needs to pay more attention to us because we need more guidance, we need more help, and we need it more often. So yes, I would say that the, the system is paying more attention to us now particularly right now, because this is, as I described earlier, a, a turning point in our growth, in our consciousness evolution. We finally have all the pieces together that we can grow up. We can take a big step. What I was talking about earlier, you know, we go from the virtual reality to consciousness, the computer, to love is the answer. We have that now, and we can do that in a big way. There's always been people who understood the nature of reality, who understood that love was the answer, who understood that reality was an illusion. That's been floating around for thousands and thousands of years, but they always remained in the margins. Groups of people in the margins. Because in those days, there was no worldwide communication system like there is now. So now, all of those 
people and their various marginal existences now have a chance to come together. And there's a lot of us. And we can all communicate. And when things change and the scientists start this ball rolling, we've got a world listening, not just 100 people that may hear our voice in our lifetime, but a whole world listening. So we have all the pieces together to make a really big step in consciousness evolution now. And that's not lost on the larger consciousness system. So yes, it's not lost on, you know, on the good guys or the bad guys. This is a very critical time. Things could uh, work out wonderfully very quickly, or they could kind of go into a hole for a while. You know, we could, could end up going back to religious wars or something. You know, that would be pretty much a disaster, but could happen, hard to say. Or we may do it just for a short time. We wouldn't do it for centuries like they did last time, you know, in Europe. We would uh, get over that, I think, uh, more quickly this time. But anyway, things are moving faster. The stakes have never been higher. The possibilities have never been richer. And I'm sure the system is paying attention. Uh, those that would help us, those that would hurt us. Everybody's paying attention. Okay, we've got a question from Bartos. And uh, he says, thank you for uh, your gracious answer of his question last September. Um, Tom, if the purpose of the IUOC was to evolve, the system reabsorbing an evolved IUOC, that is individuated unit of consciousness, would actually grow. Would that be profitable at higher quality of consciousness for the, I, for the um, LCS? Uh, I don't think that the system is going to reabsorb uh, evolved IUOCs. I wouldn't agree with that. There doesn't seem to really be a good reason for that. The system created the IUOCs as separate things. There was a reason for that because that created the, the possibilities, uh, more and more possibilities that, that what could happen. There was more potential with lots of interacting free wills than there was with just one free will. So because there was a lot more probabilities, there was a lot more space to evolve into, the whole system was opened up and, and could could grow because of breaking into those little pieces. So why would it want to absorb them? They already are it. In other words, the IUOCs, the individuated units of consciousness, are already part of the larger consciousness system in a sense that there is a communication there. There's a connection there. What would be the advantage of absorption? I think the idea of absorption comes out of um, probably some Eastern philosophy. And again, I think it's one of those ideas where you have to tell people because it gives them uh, a, little, uh, a little boost. And that is that you grow up, you learn to become love, you leave this, this awful place, you go someplace else, and eventually you just become one with the Godhead. You know, you go back into the system because you're done and you've done it. And everybody needs an end game, so that was their end game. But I don't see that end game as really being that plausible. I think you grow up and you become love and you get back to work. You keep trying to be part of the solution. Because that's what you are, and that's what you do when you become love. This idea of, okay, 
I'm really at a point now where I could be tremendously helpful and I'm out of here. That just doesn't make sense to me. So I don't think you're going to just go up and then get out and then merge with the Godhead. And I don't see any advantage to the system to do that. The system grows up as you grow up. As you evolve, it evolves because it is you and you are it. You're a piece of it. It's already got the advantages of your growth. Your growth is its growth. We're part of that system. You see, so the system grows up as we grow up. So it's not like you have to go to the executive part of that system and get absorbed by it. And somehow that's going to make it grow up more. I don't see that either. I think it's just another one of those things that makes people feel better if they think there's an escape. If they are good little boys and girls, they will be able to get out of here and not have to come back through all this hardship and, and misery and pain. Well, the thing is, once you grow up, there is no hardship, misery, and pain. There's joy, happiness, and satisfaction. Even here, there's joy, happiness, and satisfaction. And if something happens bad here, like uh, robbers break into your house and shoot your dog, you know, there's still joy and happiness and satisfaction because you can deal with those things positively. You don't wring your hands and go to pieces. See, you accept what happens Take it as a challenge and deal with it positively. So this, uh, you know, getting free, getting out, not coming back. Well, what are you going to do if you don't come back? You're just going to hang out now. It's almost like the Christian theology. You're going to play a harp on a cloud for eternity. You know, what are you going to do there? And because there's no good answer to that, that doesn't sound crashingly boring, just doing nothing forever doesn't sound like much fun or very productive or being part of the solution at all, then, well, second choice is be absorbed into the Godhead. And then, of course, you don't have to worry about what you're doing. You, that's not a problem anymore. You're just part of it again. But it seems to me if the system absorbs all of its parts then it's back where it was when it started where it had to put out all those parts so that it had more more possibilities okay within its potential so um anyway that does uh, that question let's see what is there another one donna well, there's another part to that question, Tom. Also, what about IUOCs working behind the scenes to upgrade, develop, and process virtual realities? Do they work logged in as free will awareness units, IUOCs, or simply big cheeses working at the back of the house? One may hope to take to sometime take a part in the process of working hand in hand with the LCS and take the experiential stuff in the back seat. Okay, maybe it's just me. Sometimes this PMR feels just a bit too intense. <laughs> yes, well, you can sometimes uh, be part of uh, the processing in the non-physical. Um, that has happened to me numerous times. I spent some time working in the, uh, in the virtual reality <coughs> where transitions are made, where the people have just died, where they show up and they make the transitions. And I was just given a job there. So I worked there and I processed in people and talked with them and was part of that process. The reason why I was given that job is because it was going to be educational, sort of like an intern. You know, the idea now in employment is you, you, you get interns, young people, 
And then you move them around in the company. You know, you put them in the mail room, you put them in advertising, you put them all over the place and they spend a, a month or six months in all those places. And then after that, they're more useful because now they have a bigger picture of the company and what goes on. You kind of pass them around for uh, maybe the first three or four years they're in the company. They really don't do much of anything other than learn how that company works. And I was given this assignment because I needed to learn about how the thing worked. So you can offer your assistance however uh, you wish to uh, help out, and maybe they'll take you up on it, and maybe you'll learn something. They're not going to do it if you just are amused and you want to be entertained. Oh, I'd love to do that because that would be so much fun. That's not going to get you an invitation. It's not entertainment. So uh, if it's on your path to, to growing up, then uh, it's perhaps possible. So you, send, you can sometimes become part of the process while you still have a, a body here. And when you are helping other people grow, <coughs> excuse me, helping other people grow up by growing yourself up and by giving other people an environment in which they can grow up, you are part of the bigger process. That's what the bigger process is about. So just growing, <coughs> growing up yourself and being part of, you know, uh, other people's growth, you are part of the process. You are working for the non-physical, if you will. You are working uh, for the big cheese. You're, you're working for the LCS when you do that sort of thing. So you can, you can be a part of it. But that last line, maybe sometimes I, I feel like uh, life is a bit too intense. Well, you need to have fun. Life is supposed to be fun. <clears throat> it's supposed to be joyous. If you're not having fun, then you're not doing something right. That's another sign that uh, maybe you need to change a little about the way you're approaching things. Life ought to be fun. It ought to be challenging. When you get these challenges, these things that happen to you and you have to deal with them, that ought to be fun. Even if it's a really tough thing, even if it's a really sad thing, dealing with it correctly, growing up to, to handle it, growing up to be something more than you were, that's fun. So it shouldn't be that intense that often. But sometimes it gets intense. Sometimes that's required. If it doesn't get intense, you don't move. If it don't, if sometimes you don't get hit. You never respond. You know, you need that, that whap to get you going. 